Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Wind Your Neck In, and I'm your host, Niall Abbott. This is an exciting week for us as we make our first step away from the comfort blanket of rugby. A hugely insightful chat with a man who has spent four decades rubbing shoulders with some of the best sportsmen and women to have done it. He also spent a large chunk of that holding to account those that blurred the lines of high performance and also on occasions crossed it into the world of doping, more commonly known as performance enhancing drugs. We hope you guys enjoy the chat and as always, let us know on social media what you thought. Enjoy. Okay, a warm welcome to another episode of Wind Your Neck In, and it's great to be able to steal an hour of this man's time. A big welcome to Chief Sports Writer for the Sunday Times, one of the most read newspapers on the planet, and the author of multiple books, namely, to pick one, Seven Deadly Sins by Mr. David Walsh. David, a warm welcome, and thank you so much for, for jumping on with us today. Yeah, no problem. It's great to get you on board. I'm sure you're a very busy man, and I suppose one of the first things that I was keen to discuss was, obviously, you're living through this COVID, this COVID moment like the rest of us are, and as a professional sportsman, I found it hugely frustrating. How have you found it as a journalist um, without any live sport to actually discuss? This sounds a little bit contradictory in a way, because on the one hand, I might tell you I love watching sport, but then COVID-19 comes along and it takes away sport but I've actually really enjoyed it's been almost whatever 14 weeks now I went to Cheltenham which is an, a, a sporting event I do every year and I, I actually felt pretty poor on the on the evening the Thursday evening so mm. the gold cup was the next day but I thought if I'm not feeling great that a sore throat going on I'm not going to go amongst all the people there I think everybody who was there felt guilty so I came home and that was I think March 12th and I've been at home so you know it's April, May, June, three and a half months, 14 weeks and I've enjoyed it much greater than I would ever have imagined enjoyed and but what I've enjoyed is you know and what COVID has done for a lot of people and I think I think the rest everybody would be surprised if they knew about how many people have found good things in this lockdown now, you, you've also got to say there are lots of people who've lost their jobs. There's people on, who've been furloughed. There's people who are not on furlough but are not having an income. And it is incredibly tough. And lots of people have had this virus and have suffered through it. But lots of people haven't. The majority of people haven't had. And people have been forced off the treadmill of their lives. And they've got a view of what the alternative looks like. Now, the alternative isn't something that many of us could, can go on doing indefinitely. But in the short term, or in the term of three months, if that's not, if whatever term that is, it's actually been, been really enjoyable. I mean, the Sunday Times has been coming out every Sunday. We've got a big online presence. We've got a print edition. And I've been working in the normal way. And I just found it such a treat not to have to spend half my life on the motorways driving um, not be at airports. I mean, if there's one place in the world I hate, one physical place where I never want to be, it's Stansted Airport. Now, that's my local airport. And anybody who's ever gone through Stansted Airport will think that the architect who designed Stansted, I don't know his name, thank God, because I, I'm not naming him, right? But, but if there was a vote on whether he should be lined up against a wall and shot, I think I would say yes. Or I find it very hard to say no. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a completely depressing experience to go through x-ray and walk down to your gate and stand there on a busy day. It has to be, you know, the single most soul-destroying journey on the planet. 
So I haven't been in Stan City Airport for three and a half months. Quality of my life has taken a surge upwards, you know. So, so overall, it's been a good experience. And if it were to go on for another two months, that certainly wouldn't bother me. But, but then I'm in the privileged position of being able to earn my normal salary so, so far. And uh, we'll see how it goes going forward. But overall, it's been, it's been a good experience. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And one of the things, you know, we were going we're gonna to touch on later for sure is that kind of high performance in journalism. But before we get to that, do you think journalism's, the face of what it is could change? Because I know, you know, people who, who, who clock into an office every day between nine to five now are identifying the fact that they maybe don't need to. And is there some areas that within journalism you think maybe I could do the large majority of this from my house? Well, Niall, it's been like this in journalism for a long, long time. I mean, in, in, in this respect, journalism it was ahead of the game I mean no sports writer now goes to an office we all work from home or we're on the road Uh, and even I mean I've been a a sports writer for 40 years hell of a long time (laughs) but there was never a time apart from maybe the first two years where I went into an office every day and then it was the case of going into an office two or three days a week and then it was going into the office, no day of the week. And it's been like that for the last 30 years. I mean, you spend a lot of time away from home, but you don't spend any of that time in the office. I mean, or or if you do, it's the office in your home. That makes perfect sense in fairness, because all the the sporting events that you've been at, I'm looking forward to delving into some of those because they are an unbelievable amount. And I suppose let's kick it off with the kind of the first kind of question that came to my mind, David, was that, as you've stated, you've you've been doing that job a long time and you've rubbed shoulders with some of the some of the biggest stars in the planet in the sporting sense. So are there any people that stand out for you, people who kind of they're real flashbulb memories for you when you got to engage with these people and they maybe took your breath away with their charisma or their you know, positive or negative? You know, I've never been the kind of person who got starstruck. Mm. Maybe it's arrogance on my behalf. You know, if I spend time with the Steve Redgrave, fantastic Olympian. I find it really hard not to just see him as another human being and how he relates to me on a human level is how I'm going to, uh, you know, assess him. And there's a thought in the back of my head and it's always in the back of my head. Just because, you know, a guy is a very good rugby player, it doesn't mean he's any different to somebody who's a very good fireman or somebody who's a very good doctor or somebody who's a very good whatever. And so I'm not, going to, I'm not going to get starstruck, that's for sure. There's a lot of sportsmen I, I've ended up getting to know and, and like. And, and if there's one who, when I was at his press conferences, I thought this guy is a bit different. I would have to say that was Tiger Woods. Mm. Because the quality of his, of his analysis always seemed to me to be on a different level to every other guy who played golf at at that time and even now and you don't really get that in other sports you know somebody comes in after a rugby game I mean we all know that a you know a Johnny Sexton has got a very refined and interesting view on how rugby is played we know lots of the the all blacks are very smart rugby smart but but Tiger Woods was on a really different level in terms of what he expected from himself and the level of detail he brought to the self-analysis. There's one particular story that sticks in, in my mind in relation to this. At the 2005 Open Championship that Woods, I think, won by five shots or eight shots or whatever. Won a 
convincingly dominated it. And the question was on the Sunday evening after he'd won, Tiger, there's 110 bunkers on this golf course. You've played four rounds of championship golf and you haven't been in one bunker. Like, how, how do you explain that? And Tiger said it was just good luck. And everybody laughed in that way of, you know, you can stuff your false modesty, Tiger. You know, we mm. laughed not in an admiring way, in a kind of a tired way. And he took offense and he said, do you, would you like me to name the shots where I was lucky? And everybody suddenly looked at him and, and kind of jolted upwards. And he said, on Thursday, I'm hitting down the 10th fairway. There's a bunker on the right. He said, I'm trying to miss the bunker on the left. He said, I miss it on the right. My shot was so bad, I missed it on the other side. <laughs> and he went through the other three shots, named the hole and named the day. And he said, there were the four shots that if I hadn't hit them so badly, they would have been in the bunker. And I just thought, I've never heard anybody analyze. I mean, this guy has just dominated another major championship. He's in his, you know, he's, he's at the height of his powers. And here he is telling us the reason he didn't have any shots in the bunker was down to luck. And he was right. And, and of course, we didn't see it because mm. we're not operating on his level. So he stands out, you know, in that sense of when you're in the room with him and he's, he's talking about his game. Often people say, oh, Tiger doesn't say anything. Tiger's not very interesting. He's a bit bland. My argument always was, well, if you listen closely, you'll be surprised at how interesting it is. It's almost like he's playing a game, isn't he? He's, he's kind of interested by who's actually on the same level, who can get to the same level of what he's trying to say. I wonder, is there times, David, whenever you've been frustrated speaking to people? Because my perception of sometimes, you know, I'm guilty of it and I have been guilty of it. You know, I finish a game of rugby and I come into the media and I don't actually say what it is that I'm really thinking. I have to almost control and I give out this kind of premeditated rugby answer. And yeah. some of the people, maybe you've had experiences with them. One of the person who does this better for me than anyone is Ronan Rogara. Ronan Rogara just always seemed like he just said what he thought. And I'm sure he took a few bollockings from some media managers and some coaches, but I find that frustrating. Have you ever interviewed people and thought, you know, just tell us what you really think? Yeah, I suppose I'm... I used to be like that, but then I got to a point where I realized there was no point. Mm. These guys have an ill. Uh, I mean, on Saturday, I was working virtually on the uh, Man United Norwich City FA Cup game. And Man United put out a lot of their second teamers with three first teamers, say. Yeah. They play terrible game. They're lucky to get through against the Norwich side, low on confidence with the misfiring. Uh, center forward. So, I'm a United fan, David. I have to tell you, I watched it and it was painful. You know, I bet. I bet you found it painful. And that doesn't surprise me. So, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer has spent 11 years under Alex Ferguson. Alex Ferguson operated on the basis that when the team played badly, you, you could say it was the referee's fault. You could say it was conditions. You could say whatever you liked. But what you didn't say was, we were poor today. Because that would, be, that would seem like you were publicly criticizing the players. Mm. So Solskjaer comes in and the questions are, are inviting him to acknowledge how poor United were. Because, because Harry Maguire has done a, a post-match interview in which he said this was bad. Solskjaer then comes in and says, the important thing when you play a quarterfinal 
that when you play a game in the cup, it's get to the next round. And we've done that. And he repeats that different points and he basically excuses the performance. Now, he, he, he's, in, he's taken this from Sir Alex. The last thing you can afford in a press conference like that is honesty. It will only hurt you. So don't go there. And if you want to let, you know, if you're going to let people know what your true feelings are, confine it to the players in a private meeting. That's mm-hmm. when you can achieve something by being honest. You, you know, so, so I get it and I understand it, but is it a bit frustrating? Does it make it less interesting? Of course it does. But I, it's not like, you know, I go away thinking, oh shit, why didn't, why didn't Ole tell us what he really thought? What did you expect? And, and, but I get it because, you know, you watch golfers coming off, they've shot 75 when everybody else is shooting 68, all their rivals. How was it today? And the guy says, I struck the ball really well. He said, couldn't hold a thing. He said, a number of putts just lipped out. Just flat stake didn't work today. And, and in that way, he kind of kids himself. But if kidding yourself makes it easier to come out tomorrow and play better, well, why wouldn't you kid yourself? It's like the amateurs who play hammer themselves when they don't play perfectly. The pros play imperfectly and they say it's fine because they've been trained by psychoanalysts and psychologists and psychiatrists to always take the positives. And uh, for us guys who are fans, we would prefer reality. But, you know, don't kid yourself that you're ever going to get it because you're not. And, you know, nobody, you know, does a post-round interview. And remember, they're all, everybody is, who's in sport is taught, look, when you play the match, it's the wrong time to really say what's on your mind because you're probably a bit emotional. You're probably reacting in a way that it's not really that rational because you're so pissed off with how the game has gone. So better to just be bland and then you'll be safe. Yeah, you're, you're, you're actually... You're bang on and I, I'm a complete hypocrite because of the amount of times I've sat in the changing room afterwards and said like right now is not the time let's leave this till Monday we'll all be calm we can look at this with a clear set of eyes and then I'm the one asking for people to, to I, I just wish it, there was there was less of a dance with the media and you could actually go out and you could say ah oh, lads we should have won that one today. I actually, we feel, I feel a bit robbed. You know, I feel a wee bit robbed of that one. I just wish there would there could be a, there could be a meet in the middle. You know, but I think I think you're bang on right in saying that there is an appropriate time and there is an appropriate place. And in your experience, David, is having said that you you know you'll rub shoulders with the likes of Sir Alex and you'll have done so many massive managers and coaches in different sports. And are there any of them who you spring to your mind as someone who was just an absolute architect with the media? I, I tend not to see them like that, if I'm honest. I mean, if you said to me, um, what was, I mean, I did two interviews, two one-on-one interviews with Alex Ferguson. He wanted to do the interviews, so therefore he was brilliant. And mm. the man can't, when he, when, when he agreed to do a one-on-one interview, I think Ferguson understood that he had a responsibility to give you something, you know, yeah. not to be bland. And he, and he was still would be relatively careful but he was always fantastically quotable. I mean, he always said things that were interesting. Ditto, his, his former captain at United, Roy Keane, I did maybe two or three interviews with Roy, one-on-ones. Love Roy. And yeah, well, they were, they were special because, because Roy just can't help himself. He can't help 
saying things that are controversial. And 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 he is, of course, he's very smart. I tell a story um, where if you interview Roy Keane, one of the things you know is you'd better get there on time because he will be there before time, and he'll be very unimpressed if you're in any way even ten seconds late. So we agreed to meet in a Manchester hotel, and I've driven up that morning at six o'clock. Well, I left home at six o'clock. Get there for about quarter to ten. The interview is ten o'clock. Now I've hired a room, so I'm again. That's something with Roy. You wouldn't like, you wouldn't go to the hotel without the room already booked. But I've driven up in a kind of um, in a tracksuit just for for ease of travel, and then changing into more respectable clothes in the bedroom. And it's it's now like five to ten, five minutes before the interview. I text Roy the room number, and he comes to the room at five to ten, and I'm literally, I've got my shirt on. And I'm pulling up my pants, no socks on, <laughs> right? And, I, and I'm really trying to do it quickly. And it's not happening quickly. And Roy bangs on the door a second time. And I think, oh, shit, he's, he's, gonna, he's just going to turn on his heels and go. So I open the door as I'm, as I'm pulling up my pants. And Keen looks at me and says, I thought it was meant to be the other way around. <laughs> That I should have been catching him. As a spontaneous, clever, one-off, brilliant. I mean, but, but the guy is, is very smart, no question. And, you know, on the other hand, I mean, it makes him a brilliant pundit. When Roy, when Roy spoke at halftime in the, in the Tottenham United game recently, where he absolutely eviscerated David De Gea and Harry Maguire and Luke Shaw, I mean, United generally. I mean, the anger in his face was just so what you don't see from pundits. I mean, this was beyond passion. This was like, this was where passion just goes, goes over into almost insane anger. It was brilliant TV. But I'm kind of thinking, you have to also ask, is it fair? Is it justified? Was it over the top? And I thought, yeah, it wasn't 100% fair. It was over the top. And I thought by the, by the time we came back, at the end of the game, Roy had kind of softened his stance ever so slightly. Yeah. And what works in a dressing room at halftime doesn't work in a studio at halftime as well. I mean, it does in the clickbait sense, in the sense all people find it astonishing. But if you were doing that all the time, if Roy was as angry as that, a lot of the time, you know, it wouldn't work. You know, people would get tired of it and people would analyze it and say, no. Yeah, and I suppose that maybe that ties in with the emotional sense of maybe Roy still feels that, you know, frustration whenever he sees United doing stuff that he doesn't find acceptable. And a lot, if you listen to what he says, and I, I kind of understand what he means because I can relate to it in a rugby sense, but a lot of what he talks about are qualities that actually he's not reflecting on a lot of technique or tactical stuff. It's a lot of don't let people run past you. And that's, you know, it's more about the actual want and desire that he demands of, demanded of his teammates and still demands of the Manchester United players. Yes. Yes, it is. And, um, and I, and I do think, you know, there's a question then, well, why hasn't Roy, hasn't, because we know he's a leader, we know he's bright. Why doesn't, why hasn't he had a more successful career so far in management? I mean, he did okay at Sunderland, they got promoted. Uh, it's, it's not so good, you know, Ireland, and, you know, different um, involvements then didn't amount to anything. And sometimes 
I want Roy to be less, for it to be less about kind of character and more about kind of technique and tactics. Mm. And it would have been interesting if he'd, if he'd, if he'd explained why, why Harry Maguire got caught in that bad position and to what extent Luke Shaw has to take responsibility for a bad header and then allowing himself to get out of position in that moment running forward. Uh, as a viewer, I mean, the emotion is great and, and you latch onto it. But, but more long-term, I'd like Roy to be more clinical and, more, and, and explain to me tactically why this goal happened. Touching on the football or the soccer, depending on which part of Ireland you're from, um, growing up, David, did you have a particular affiliation with any sports? Because I know you obviously la- you obviously are hugely decorated at the forefront of some of the biggest cycling um, stories and events, and, and we're going to get to that later on. But when you were growing up in Ireland, you know, which of the sports did, did you kind of gravitate towards? And, and, and how come that you decided to move down that sports journalism route? Yeah, well, I mean, I wanted to be a sports journalist from the age of dot. You know, when I say that, Brilliant. and I know this sounds ridiculous. Every time I say it, I think there's a voice in the back of my head that says you're lying, but I, <laughs> but I know I'm not. Um, I wanted to be a sports reporter from about the age of six or seven. Honestly, it was the only thing I wanted to be. Uh, I think the first sport I remember watching, you know, avidly on, on TV was horse racing. I loved the thing of seeing horses race. But then I got into all sports. I mean, I was from Kilkenny, so hurling was always important. Although the village I came from wasn't a, it was near the city of Waterford, which was mm. a very big soccer football town. And um, I mean, I played for our local um, soccer team, football team. Uh, the school I went to played rugby, Waterpark. And um, my dad was a big, big rugby man and loved rugby. He played a lot of rugby. He was a very decent rugby player. My younger brother played played three games for Munster. You know, he was because he played for Waterpark, maybe he wasn't as looked at as closely as, as anybody from Cork Constitution or mm. Shannon or but he was a very good player. He played very high level junior soccer as well, FAI Junior Cup. And he played uh Indra County Gaelic football for Kilkenny, which is you know, Kilkenny do have a Gaelic football team. So rugby was a big part of my um my my secondary school career. And um, the, only, the only memory worth kind of dragging up is that in my final year in school, Waterpark played a game against De La Salle Churchtown. Now, this was back maybe January, sorry, late December 71 or January 72. And um, basically, I was playing full back and I got kicked in the head. And I got kicked in the head by Des Fitzgerald, who's Luke Fitzgerald's dad. Now, Des went on to play, I think, 39 times for Ireland prop, technically brilliant prop. Now, Des, when he was a schoolboy, was a huge kid. I don't know, 16 stones, I'd say. And I went down on a ball. The ball was kicked forward. I was coming in, and I wanted to scoop it up and get on my feet as quickly as I could. And I, I slid in on the ball like a soccer goalkeeper almost. And Des whacked with his right foot, right? Caught me bang in the face. I was taken off to hospital. I spent four weeks in hospital. Oh this my goodness, it was a serious one? Serious injury, yeah, yeah. I oh had two goodness. operations on my nose. All the cartilage was removed. It was like horrific. I mean, so bad you wouldn't believe. And uh, I mean, it literally felt like my head was leaving my body and my <laughs> head went up in the air, but my body followed it. I mean, but it felt like my head was taken off. Time passed, right? We now move on about eight years later. 
I get a job working for the Irish press as a sports writer. They send me off to uh, cover Leinster touring Romania because all the real Leinster players were playing for the Lions. And Des Fitzgerald was called into the Leinster squad for the Romania trip, first time in his career. And of course, in those days, journalists traveled on the same plane as the team. And I'm sitting alongside Des Fitzgerald and he doesn't know me for Adam because we've never, I mean, he won't mind me saying he wasn't ringing the school to find out was I okay when I was in the hospital, you know. It was Christmas holidays, everybody had things on, you know, and I spent those Christmas holidays in hospital, in Orkin Hospital. Well, I say to him, I say, Des, when we introduced ourselves, I'm David Watts, sports writer with the Irish Press, I'm Des Fitzgerald, new prop in the Leinster squad. I say, oh, yeah, I know the name. Did you, did you ever play a game against Waterpark College in, in kind of over Christmas period a few year, number of years ago? And he said, oh, Jesus, don't mention that. Don't mention that, that name to me. And I said, why not? He said, I kicked the fella in the head down there. But it was the worst thing. And I said, I said, Des, I played in that game. He said, you couldn't have. You couldn't have. And I said, I did. I said, it happened in the second half. And he said, Chase, you're, you're right. <laughs> the game. I said, I'm the guy you kicked. And he said, oh, Jez, I'm really sorry. I'm really <laughs> sorry, he said. I'm really sorry. And uh, Des, Des Fitzgerald, they got in the Irish team. And I became a rugby, rugby correspondent for the Sunday Tribune and the Sunday Independent. And I always had this terrific insight into what was going on in the Irish team at that time. And the reason I had was because... Des was, was, was paying off a debt that he incurred in that school's game eight years before. Absolutely. Four-week debt left you in bloody hospital. That's horrific. That's right. That's right. But nice he, to have someone in your pocket, though. It's good to have. Yeah, there's been plenty of times since where he said he was wrong. He, he didn't kick me hard enough. <laughs> any harder we could have been in a, uh, couldn't have been yeah, and, and we're still great pals I mean we talk a lot you know and obviously I reported on Des I reported on his son Luke playing for Ireland in the Lions yeah. and uh, so yeah it, it's a it was a bit of a coincidence for sure yeah brilliant and it's amazing that you make those relationships you know throughout the journey of what you do and to give some context for where the conversation is going to go uh, onwards I think as as we said before off, off air you know the the, the whole theme throughout this conversation on this podcast is about high performance and we've had some amazing insight from some of the some ex-players like John Smith and some coaches and ex-coaches and um, we've had Nick Mullins on as a journalist and I think what you're going to allow hopefully is for us to delve into what high performance looks like from a journalistic point of view but also from the experiences that you've had when high performance can be taken too far and I think it goes to say that if if anybody hasn't seen any of the documentaries around the the Lance Armstrong doping and the movie the program you feature quite heavily in a lot of them and I have had a lot of fun catching up on a lot of these things, probably watching them for the second or third time. So um, let's get to the high performance side of this, okay? And one of the things I'd like to touch on before we get to the cycling, the actual insights of the cycling was I read a line and I thought it was fascinating and I thought it was interesting and I thought I would, I would like to bring it up and discuss it with you. And the lines of high performance can blur and I read whilst preparing for this that you said you know that the Lance Armstrong ordeal wasn't the most difficult story you've ever had to break because actually, in fact, telling the Irish public 
through the pages of the Sunday Times that Michelle Smith's three gold medals in the swimming um, Olympics in 1996 was probably achieved through doping. And that was yeah. harder for you. And I wonder if you could just give us some insight into that kind of story and what the breaking that was actually like. Yeah, I mean, um, that happened in 1996. I think the Olympics in Atlanta were August 1996. And um, I joined the Sunday Times in um, April of 96. So I'm um, three months, four months working for the Sunday Times. They sent me off to the Olympics. The Sunday Times think this is brilliant. We've, we've got this guy, this Irish guy now working for us at the Olympics. And one of the stars of the Olympics is an Irish person. I mean, remember, 1996 was exactly 100 years after the modern Olympics were born, 1896. Yeah. And in that 100 years, Ireland had four gold medals. And then in one week, they get three more gold medals from the same person, Michelle Smith. And the Sunday Times wanted me to write about what a terrific story this was. And I'm saying to the sports editor, I don't believe that this story is true. And um, the question would have been, why isn't it true? And I would have said, well, Michelle Smith has been an international swimmer for 12 years. I think she was 26 at the time. She'd been on the Irish teams from her middle teenage years. So she's never got into a final, a big name final. She struggled to get into B finals. She's never been a contender for Olympic finals ever, not even remotely. And suddenly she makes this like huge improvement and it coincides with her, with her relationship with the Dutch track athlete, um, no field athlete. And he was serving a ban at the time for doping. He'd been caught with anabolic steroids and she's made this outrageous level of improvement mm. and everybody at the pool deck in Atlanta was talking about it and not talking about it in an admiring way, but talking about it in a way that said, we don't believe this is true. So initially I was re trying to reflect the fact that a lot of people, to a lot of people, this didn't seem right. And there were, there were two other Irish journalists there, Paul Kimmage and Tom Humphreys, who were, who were both just as skeptical as I was. But there was a, a bigger number of journalists who were quite happy to believe there was a true story. And you had RTE, the national broadcaster, who were utterly buying into it, not asking any questions. So if you ask questions, you were deemed to be reigning on one of the greatest parades in the history of Irish sport. And that was difficult because you had your kids, you know, my kids lived in County Westmeath, our kids lived in County Westmeath at that time. And uh, everybody was kind of joyous about what Michelle Smith was doing. And, you know, who is your dad to be saying we shouldn't believe this? And that was difficult. I remember having a conversation with a, with a woman who was a very good journalist working for RTE. And we were sitting watching the racing and we, I talked about why I found it so suspicious. And she said, having listened to you make the case against Michelle Smith, I am inclined to go with your view on this. And she rang Ortie and she spoke to her producer. And she said to her producer, we've got to be doing something different here because this story is not to be believed. And the producer said, look, 
there is a national mood here and we don't want to deflate it. And, and that's how it was, you know, it was, um, but it was very tough. I mean, Michelle Smith still now, Michelle De Bruyne still insists that she never doped. I mean, she did get, she did get a ban. She did, she was sanctioned. Uh, all the evidence points otherwise. And it's, it's just a sad, inconclusive story where some Irish people probably still believe that she won them fairly. But I think quite a few people believed she didn't. And then there's an even bigger group in between who probably just don't know what to think. Uh, yet that was far tougher because it was so close to home than the yeah. Armstrong story would be. Yeah, I can totally understand that. And I suppose, um, did that experience in your, in your infancy as a, as a, as a journalist, kind of in the earlier years, um, having to deal with the kind of politics and the, the mood, uh, the, the deflation of the, the, the country's mood, did that allow you to kind of form some really strong principles in which you later show with the, the whole scenario with Lance Armstrong, which we'll get to right now. But in the early years, you had to be strong enough to say that this doesn't add up and it could have been very easy for you to just to go the way with what the, the, they wanted, but it didn't sit right with you from a principles, from your principles as a human being. So did that allow you to kind of build on that for the Lance Armstrong scenario? Yeah, it did. It, it did, of course, because it was such a kind of an iconic controversy, the Michelle Smith controversy. But there were other factors. I had been, um, and, I, and still am, um, close friends with Paul Kimmich, who was a professional mm. writer. And Paul in 1990 had been writing his book Rough Ride in which he kind of detailed the level of doping that existed in cycling. You know, I knew that Paul in his career got screwed because he didn't want to dope. You know, he came from a a family and and had parents who would have said, don't do it. And knowing Paul and knowing what Paul went through made me very anti-doping. And as a journalist, I felt in my earlier career, I was a bit of a fan with the typewriter. I wanted to believe that all sportsmen were great people and it, it took me a while to kind of grow out of that. I mean, could I have been far more questioning about Stephen Roach and Sean Kelly when I was covering Irish, Irish cycling in the early years, in the 80s? Definitely. And I was also, I've mentioned this many times, I've been, uh, I was really um, struck by something that our, our son, our son John, who died, he was coming home from a Gaelic football match on his bicycle, he was struck by a car. He was killed instantly. And I, I went round and I, I spoke to people about John Biss. We wanted to carry his memory forward. Yeah. And his teacher told me a story that, I, that, that is a dear, dear story to me, where she was reading the nativity, the story of the nativity, three weeks before Christmas. In about, you know, John was about 10 or 11. It was 93 or 94. And she reads the story, you know, Mary and Joseph come from Galilee to Bethlehem and they get turned away from the inns and they end up in a stable. Baby Jesus is born. The three shepherds come and pay their respects. Three wise men come and they bring gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And then Mary and Joseph go back to their home and they, they live a very modest life because they didn't have any money. And John's hand is up. And he said, Miss, to his teacher, Mrs. Toomey, he said, you say that Mary and Joseph didn't have any money and they lived a very modest life. What did they do with the gold that the three wise men gave them? <laughs> and when I heard that from Mrs. Toomey, I thought 
that's the core of what journalism should be. But it isn't just journalism, it's the core of what life should be. If we hear something that doesn't sit well with us and we know we should speak up or ask a question, well then, as best we can, we must do that. We mustn't accept something that we think isn't right. You think of rugby players now, to jump onto a, you know, to the game you play now, you know, how many players are saying, are putting their hands up and saying, look, can we sit down and talk about painkillers and how much we use and, and, and how correct this is in terms of our welfare? You know, how many players have forced those discussions and how many of them have just said, you know what, my hip really aches and I don't give a shit. I'm going to take as much as I can to get rid of that pain. So my argument or my, what I took from hearing that story about John and what did Mary and Joseph do with the gold was that here was a, a 10 or an 11 year old kid who didn't mind being ridiculed by the rest of the class, who didn't mind asking a question that according to Mrs. Toomey in 33 years of reading this story to pupils, nobody had ever asked. And she said to him, she's, she told me, she said, John, the thing is, nobody has ever asked me this question. And the truth is, I don't know what they did with the gold. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it is a great question. It's a great question. And I definitely was carrying that forward. I was always going to say, you know what, this doesn't sit right with me. You know, this, this doesn't seem plausible. You know, you, you'd need to be an idiot to believe this. So don't believe it. Ask questions. And when, when Lance Armstrong turned up in 1999 to win his first Tour de France, it was so ridiculous. I mean, historians looking back on it, if they were writing the story of the 99 race, they would wonder how anybody believed it was true. Absolutely. And I wonder, before we get to that actual, the actual moment where you kind of had your earliest reservations around what Lance had achieved, can you give us some insight into the first time you ever met him and the kind of the aura that he, that he maybe gave off and whether that was a positive or a negative thing? Because there's been a lot written around how driven he was as a young writer. Yeah, he was, um, he was, he was incredibly driven. I had first met him in 1993, six years before he won his first tour. He was then a 21-year-old riding the Tour de France for the first time. And I was, you know, in 1993, I was 38. Um, I was covering, I'd been covering the tour for, for more than 10 years at that point. And I, I had always wanted to write a book about the Tour de France. And I got a, a London publisher to agree to give me an advance to write a book about the tour that would be like a latter-day Canterbury Tales, where, you know, Chaucer wrote this, you know, fantastic series of stories called the Canterbury Tales about people going to the pilgrimage to Canterbury. And different people would tell stories along the way, and the stories were incredibly kind of readable and entertaining when Chaucer put them down on paper. And I wanted to do a, an equivalent book about the Tour de France, where along the way I would talk to people uh, who were involved in the race. A masseur, a team manager, lots of riders, organizers, former champions, all that stuff. The first chapter, I wanted to be the story of a rookie, a guy riding the race for the first time. And I picked out Lance Armstrong because I thought, 
this guy looks interesting. He'd come into the pro game the previous, at the end of the previous season, 1992, with a big reputation. And uh, he agreed to do the interview. I met him on the rest day in a, in a lovely hotel just outside Grenoble. Warm, typical Tour de France day. Uh, you know, blue sky, great heat. And we're sitting in the shade in this kind of hotel garden. And we speak for maybe three hours. And I love the guy. I think this guy is going to be something. You know, he's just got mm. the force of his personality. He kind of blew you away. Now, I wasn't thinking this guy's ever going to be a Tour de France winner because you would have looked at him physically and you would have looked at what he had done and you would have thought, you know, he's likely to be a great classics writer, one-day guy. Probably won't have, won't have it in him to get over the big mountains or be a great or be a Tour de France, you know, champion level time trialist. But it was his character that struck you much more than his physical capabilities. I mean, I would ask a question like, you know, Lance, you never knew your biological dad. And Lance would reply, no, he walked out on me when I was 10 months old and I've never seen him since. He tried to kind of get back in my life after I did well in cycling, but I blew him off. He said, no interest. And uh, then he tells me about his stepdad, who had been around for about 12 years. He said, the day my mum kicked him out, I wanted to have a party. He said, oh, kids in my class, their parents were divorcing, they were crying, they were upset. He said, the day my mum kicked him out, he said, one of the best days of my life. He said, I said to my mum, you know what? It's, it's better to be lonely than, than be miserable. Mm. And Lance at that point was about 12 or 13 years of age. So you had a sense of somebody who was bright, strong-willed, incredibly driven, and who, who was absolutely determined to leave his mark on life. He wasn't going to sail anonymously through his cycling career or, or, or go through his life without people noticing. He was determined to have an impact. And, and, and I'm just, um, you know, that bit of a fan with the typewriter at that point, probably still. And I'm thinking, I've met a guy, both of us get into the lift on the bottom, on the bottom floor. And he's, he's basically going to be going to the top. And I'm going to be the guy, the journalist saying, you know, I interviewed him when he was only 21 in his first tour de France. And I know it's pathetic, but that's what, that's what us sports writers do. You know, we like to, we like to be in the same room as the, as, as, as the champion to be. We like to say, oh, I knew him. Although I have to say, you know, and this relates back to what impression did they make on you? I don't feel like that anymore about sportsmen. I really don't. I am, um, you know, I, many of them I know well and great friends with and would like them as people. And some of them, not so much. And, it, and this is an interesting story, and it's, it's, uh, maybe it reflects badly on me, but let, let me tell you, I, because it, it crystallizes my point of view here, the, the, the feeling I have about sportsmen um, in, in a general sense, that you must treat them or consider them as people, not be blown away by their charisma or their talent or whatever. Mm. 
Uh, I interviewed Shane Warren, who I think everybody seems to like. I interviewed him at Lords about 10 years ago, and he knew the interview was going to happen. He had a few kind of uh, minders there. There was remember, kind of three or four women, one from Lords that he knew, and two other people from marketing that he knew. And I come to interview him. And he was incredibly charismatic. Absolutely. Just like, like beyond belief. Uh, afterwards, I was saying to people, I don't think I've ever met anybody so charismatic in my life. I mean, talk about charming you. The guy was brilliant. And the three women who were there felt exactly as I did, except that they, they all seemed pretty heterosexual and very into him as well. And he was brilliant with them in terms of presenting himself as this wonderfully attractive and handsome man. You know, So I come away and I write a piece in the Sunday Times reflecting my almost man crush on Shane Warren, right? Pathetic. And um, I meet Shane Warren then eight years later at a dinner up at the Dunhill Links golf tournament. And the table, lots of top sportsmen play in the Dunhill Links. I've been fortunate to get a few invites to play in it. And it's the Saturday night banquet. And I'm sitting here on my right with Shane Warren and Brian O'Driscoll, the rugby player, is on my left. Shane Warren, the seat on his right is empty and the seat beyond them is empty. So the only person he can speak to really is me. And then maybe try to get Brian O'Driscoll involved as well. So we three-way conversation. And, and I very politely, because now remember, my man crush hasn't, has dulled, but it's still there, you know? Yeah. I still, spot for him. This is a great guy. I say, Shane, um, David Walsh is my name. I'm sports writer with the Sunday Times. You, you won't remember this. I always say that to sportsmen because I know that what I say, you won't remember this. But I interview, interview at, at, at Lord's about eight years ago. And, uh, and he said, no, Matt, don't, re- don't remember that. Just like that, right? He didn't. He just said nothing else. I said, no, he said, you're right. Don't remember that. And I thought, where is the charismatic guy that you yeah. were? That? Well, we're about five minutes further on into the meal. The starters haven't even arrived. And he kind of puts his head forward to try and catch Brian O'Driscoll's eye. And he says, Brian, he said, what were your six best shots today? Brian O'Driscoll got kind of, I, I, to, to be fair to Brian, whom I know pretty well, got really uneasy because he thought, you know, Shane, you've got that guy between us <laughs> who is also playing golf up here. And this is slightly embarrassing. And Brian tried to, Kind of, I say, oh, yeah, I did play well, but I can't really remember, you know, any of the shots. He just didn't want to engage in that. And Shane said, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about my six best shots then. And he starts talking to Brian. And I thought, I've been at loads of those dinners. And it is difficult. You're meeting people you've never met before. All of, of course, it's difficult. But it was about the rudest, least charismatic performance that I would have ever experienced in my life. And my attitude was, you know, Shane, you've lost it, man. You know? So do you think he was showing you something one day and do you think you saw the Completely. real thing the next day? Completely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When I was David Walsh, sports writer from the Sunday Times, coming to interview him, he was performing for mm. that. 
I was going to, he had some sponsor, I'm sure it was organized by some sponsor. He was doing a very professional deal for the sponsor. Being, being nice and charismatic to me was part of the deal. Now we're at a dinner and he's not working for the sponsor. He's being himself. I don't like that. I don't, I don't like that because it's just, it's fake, isn't it? It's very, oh, very fake. complete. And, and to be fair, Brian O'Driscoll didn't like it either. Well, that's not in, that's not in uh, Brandon Driscoll's nature from what I've met him once or twice, played against him. Actually, my debut was against Leinster uh, at the RDS and we got humped <laughs> by about 50 points. And he was an absolute legend afterwards, don't get me wrong, but not yes. in his nature to be arrogant in any way, considering yeah, one of the greatest, yeah, yeah, one yeah. of the greatest rugby players of all time, but it's, it's not above him to make time for people. So that's I think that's more of a reflection on Shane Warren than anything, isn't it? Yeah, and it, but it makes that point about, you know, wouldn't you be an idiot if you were kind of bowled over by the fact that somebody mm. was a very good bowler? Okay. You know, when really, what, if you're ever going to, if, you're going, if you work in a business where you're going to come across them, it's far more important how they, how they, how they interact with you as a human being. That's Absolutely. what's going to form your view of them, you know. And, and, and I, I, maybe it's a bit tough you know, picking out Shane, but, but that's, to me, that, that's, that was a standout moment. And very few sportsmen I've known have, have, uh, have been like that. And I, and I, I could tell you, uh, James Cracknell, way back, this would have been, I'd say, 1999, 2000, when the Armstrong controversy was right in its infancy. I was at something in London. It was like some sports event. And when I was coming out, I could see James Cracknell in the distance. I recognized him. He shouldn't, have, he shouldn't have been able to recognize me, but he did. And I could see him waiting and he was kind of looking at me. And as I'm about to pass him, he says, David, could just want to have a word. And I said, oh, yes, James, yeah. And he said, um, he said, I've read every line you've written about Armstrong so far. And he said, you've got to keep doing it. You're 100% right in what you're doing. And he said, I totally admire you for doing it. Now, that was at a time when... There wouldn't have been 10 people who would have thought I was doing the right thing. Mm. And James Cracknell absolutely stood out. So, so as much as I, 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 you, know, you have bad memories of some people, there are plenty of people out there who, who have been very impressive. Absolutely. And I think, I suppose, now that we've touched on that first instance of you, of you engaging with Lance, and I think it's probably right to give some context for any of the listeners who don't know a huge amount about cycling itself. And you have a hugely decorated career in, in covering cycling but cycling for me sits among some of the sports that have just never been able to get their doping um, issues under control and I mean even before doping there are, there are stories like that I couldn't believe when I was researching this uh, things around you know the old wine cork in the mouth where they would attach the wine cork to a fishing rope and they were basically pulling people up the hills and you know some of these might be fabricated but it's an in, it's indicative of what the bad, the dark side of what cycling is. You know, you hear about people having false gears in their bikes and then you move on to, this, to the part where the doping issue in cycling is just rife and, and you were at the forefront of what that Lance Armstrong um, story, you know, you wrote a book about it, which is an unbelievable read and if anybody um, has time on their hands and wants to get into a good sports documentary book, it's The Seven Deadly Sins, My Pursuit of Lance Armstrong unbelievable so when we go back to the very start of that and we've covered on cycling what is it about cycling 
that they've never been able to grasp the real issue with the doping. I suppose if you think 1903, the first Tour de France, they come up with this idea of having a, a bicycle race all around France. And they're, 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 you know, it's going to be murderously difficult. Not many people want to do it. So they basically pay down and out miscreants, people who didn't have jobs, they, they pay them to, to do this. And of course, the people who were signing up to do it then weren't governed. These weren't the kind of people that, that uh, Baron de Coubertin was appealing to when the Olympic movement was starting out. These were, these were very different kind of people and they would do whatever they felt, you know, the, whatever they had to do to, to get by. And there was a bit of that about, uh, about cycling from the very beginning. You know, it's so hard and so punishing. How could you, how could you, you know, accuse anybody or blame anybody for hitching his system to some outside motor? Because they're going up the biggest mountains you've ever seen and they're riding for, you know, you know, hundreds of kilometers. I mean, literally at one point through the night. Mm-hmm. And so of course, you know, a cheating kind of culture was always, there was always a really good chance that that was going to come with the sport and it did. And then when doping came along, it was accepted for a long, long time. It wasn't like, Doping laws didn't come in until relatively recently in cycling. And then when they did get an anti-doping system up and running, they found lots of things weren't detectable. I mean, the reason why Lance Armstrong was kind of, in a way, I wouldn't say pressurized because he made his own decisions. But the reason why doping was, was in a way, so attractive to so many riders in 1999, when Lance Armstrong won his first tour, was that the most influential or you know the biggest performance enhancer there was was epo and nobody had a test that could detect epo so therefore you could use it without any recriminations and if you didn't use it you were thinking well the guys who do use it are going to have such an advantage over me that i won't be able to compete so and Armstrong would have been one of those people who would have thought, you know what, you just do what you have to do to win. And morality and, and um, ethics don't come into it. What matters is that you don't test positive and you don't get disqualified or kicked out of the race or get a drug ban. You just avoid detection and everything is good. And that's, that's how Armstrong felt as did many other riders in that tour. But not all. There were plenty of riders in 99 who were not cheating. And because the sport had been seen the previous year in 98 to be a a drug-infested circus, really. It wasn't a sports event. It was a a horrible circus where, where the idea of rider welfare was non-existent. And if these guys were all doping themselves into an early grave, so what? Nobody cared. Yeah, it's just unbelievable for, to, to reflect on that. I think in 98, there was that obvious huge fallout from um, the, the, the team that basically got, well, there was, a, there was arrests made. This became a penal problem, not just a, a, you know, a, a slap on the wrist and, a, and you're, you're out the door kind of thing. And you know, there's, there's a moment in the program, and, and I think Chris O'Dowd, uh, plays you plays you fantastically, I have to say. <laughs> and um, there's a moment in there, and I wonder if if 
I kind of, this is the way I picture it and maybe you can give some insight, but it's the point at which Lance Armstrong comes back in 99. He's come over to chemotherapy and there's a point at which he's neck and neck with someone and they're doing this horrific climb. It looks like a front rower's worst nightmare. And he just starts to pull away and he goes and he starts to attack this hill and he's actually overtaking motorbikes and the, the wee mopeds that are recording them. And in this moment in the program, Chris O'Dowd, who's playing you, basically stands up and is watching it with such cynicism that whilst the rest of the room is on their feet, you know, fist pumping, screaming, go Lance, go Lance. Is there a moment that you can reflect on whenever you thought, hold on, this question that I have to ask is coming in, into my brain and formulating now? Yeah, I mean, I felt that was a pretty accurate portrayal because that was the first mountain stage in 99. It was the race to Sestriere. Lance was already in the yellow jersey because he produced a uh, like a dominant time trial performance the previous, uh, maybe two days previously or the previous day. But he was certainly in yellow and now he's he has an advantage and now he's going to absolutely hammer it home. And even though we were only 10 days into a 23-day race, he wins, in, he wins that mountain stage in Sestriere in such an emphatic way that the race is effectively over and we haven't even got to halfway. And in the press room, when Lance made his attack and accelerated away from people, there was actually quite a, quite a lot of scepticism. A number of journalists, I don't know, you will, I wouldn't want to put a percentage on it, but it was quite a number of journalists thought, this is ridiculous. This guy rode the Tour de France four times before he got cancer. He never was able to compete in the mountains. He just wasn't a mountain rider. Now he's become the most dominant mountain rider you've ever seen. And there was a lot of skepticism. And I certainly felt this isn't the performance of somebody who's clean. This isn't the performance of somebody who's not using EPO. And, uh, and I remember my editor at the Sunday Times, sports editor was Alex Butler. We spoke after that stage. And Alex said, it looks like Armstrong's going to go on and win. And I said, yeah. And he said, fantastic story guy back from cancer and I'm saying Alex I don't believe it and he's saying shit you know because this is bad news now we're going to have to deal with how do we report mm. one of the greatest comeback stories in the history of sport in a negative way because our readers are not going to like this and our a lot of our readers hated it um, because basically the headline that Sunday that Armstrong won his first tour was was the headline on the Sunday Times piece was flawed fairy tale, and you know that was written in late July, nineteen ninety nine, and it would be thirteen and a half years later before Armstrong is sanctioned. But we were saying thirteen and a half years before that this guy's a doper. So, so throughout that thirteen years, you're you're. It must have been very difficult for you at times to deal with the pressure that was being applied to you to basically almost like a shut up, don't, don't ruin this story. It's a brilliant story. And we get back to that Michelle Smith story earlier where you felt this external pressure to let the good story be a good story, but it doesn't sit right with you. And one of the other parts of this whole 13-year journey is where, you know, you have this amazing press conference experience where Lance directs every single question that's brought up 
throughout that press conference directly to you. And there's actually footage of it through the documentaries that I watched. And it's, it's unnerving because it's almost like he's trying to bully you to, to conform with what everybody else is believing in this hype and this story. So your, his treatment of you was at times disgraceful in the way that he tried to bully you with lawsuits and with um, the, the, the discussion that we just had there. How do, how do you reflect on that experience and, and the emotions? And was there times whenever you felt like this isn't worth it? No, um, it never bothered me like that. You know, I don't know. Did you, um, did you watch The Wire? Yeah. That David Simon, mm-hmm. um, the gay psychopath, great character what was he called he's in the witness box and he's being cross-examined right he's you know he's obviously killed lots of bad guys yeah and um his answer is you know to the the question is something like um about him being a you know a bad guy and he says no it's like it's all in the game and, you know he's he's talking to the lawyer who's cross-examining him aggressively he said, I bring a gun to my job, you bring a briefcase. But it's all in the game. And mm. Lance Brawler. Omar. 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 How could we forget him? Brilliant. And that expression, it's all in the game. I felt when Lance was kind of trying to intimidate me. Well, this is the game now. And mm. what matters is not that he's intimidating me or that I'm ever... I mean, at the time, I would never have suggested to anybody that he was trying to intimidate me or would never have seen it like that. I just thought he's eyeballing me because he regards me as the problem. And I've got it in that press conference, I had a choice, you know. When Lance looks at, looks at you, do you look away and kind of avert your gaze and hope that when you look back at him, he's looking elsewhere? Or do you stare back? Mm. And my attitude was stare back. Just look at him. Try to try to come up with the the hardest kind of Roy Keane like expression that you can manage, <laughs> and see if you can hold it longer than he can. See, see who blinks first, basically. And I know it's it's childish, and it it achieved nothing. But but there were there were actually a number of times in that press conference where he was the one who looked away. And, and that pleased me because I didn't feel intimidated. I didn't feel like, you know, oh God, Lance is coming down hard on me now. Lance has sued me now, I'd better stop. I mean, when he sued us and we lost, well then we were going to put ourselves in a very bad position if we wrote anything that aggravated the judge's view of how this was going. But it was actually, it was, it was so, if it was tough, it was tough for one reason. We were dealing with UK libel laws that were ridiculous. I could get three people to say that they had direct knowledge of Lance Armstrong's doping. They would sign sworn affidavits. And then my barrister saying to me, that's not good enough. Because if he comes up with five people who says that the three people are liars, mm-hmm. he'll win. Now in the US or in France, I come up with two people who says Lance is a doper. I'll then quote Lance saying, what they're saying is untrue, and I can say it. Because I have two witnesses that say, this guy is a doper, and there's no problem in the, in the US or in France in saying that. In the UK, you can't say it, because he can find a number of people ready to lie for him. 
and and that to me was a that was a killer, and that was really hard to take. And those lawyers who were, you know, those judges who were dismissive of our, of our case, Judge Edie, there was Judge Gray, Justice, Mr. Justice Gray, you know, they were really dismissive of our case against Armstrong. How do they feel now? They probably think it was they were only upholding the libel laws as they are. And the problem of the libel laws and the problem, you know, is the libel laws, not their judgments. And, you know, that's fine. That gets by. And then you get to a situation where somebody commits a murder and we all know he's done it. But but there's a there's a there's a law which allows him to get away with it. Is that OK, too? Um, and that's the bit that I felt was um, was hard to take, you know, that Sunday Times basically it cost them a million pounds before they bailed out. But they did bail out. And I know there were certain people at the Sunday Times who felt bailing out was the wrong thing to do, that the paper should have carried on the fight to the, to the end. But the end might well have been a five million loss. Yeah. Now, at the end of it all, the Sunday Times got its money back and, and with interest. So it, it didn't mean a loss. Uh, to them, and, and and the story did end very well. But but having said that, how could you complain about the Sunday Times when they were the only newspaper at that time seriously asking questions? Yeah. When in two thousand and four, I I teamed up with a very good French journalist, Pierre Ballester, and we'd written a book called L.A. Confidential. Yes. The, the secrets of Lance Armstrong. We could only get it published in France, but there was lots of translations available on the internet. And a top sports writer at the New York Times, George, George Vesey, wrote a piece about it. And he was quite complimentary about the book. But the last line of the piece was, which was a, like a, a withering dismissal of the book, he said, but I still believe Lance. And I just thought, you complete idiot. You know, <laughs> how, how could you? When, when all the evidence is there in front of you. But at the time, it was kind of, it, it, it was almost like it was politically incorrect to question the man in commas, who's doing so much for cancer. And, but, and that and that Livestrong, the work he did with Livestrong was unbelievable, and no one doubts that or questions that. But at the point in which you know you started to get, they started to get people openly starting to discredit what he was doing and admit that he doped guy the people like betsy andrew emma o'reilly and floyd landis leading the charge in terms of confirming that he had doped did you start to feel the momentum swing and at that stage did you start to really put your foot down the pedal no um the momentum i mean with betsy and with betsy andreo and and emma o'reilly and stephen swart I got a lot of stuff out there in 2004, 2005, that time. And Armstrong then beat us in court in 2006. And then it went quiet until 2010, really. Floyd Landis basically opened the can of worms and, mm. and told all the truths about, um, about Lance Armstrong. And that was the turning point in terms of Lance's fall. What Landis put out there was irrefutable evidence of Lance's doping. And it led to investigations that eventually led to his downfall. So I would never say, you know, that anything I did, you know, brought down Lance Armstrong. It didn't. Lance Armstrong was getting away with it after I had done my best to kind of alert people to the fact that this was not a true story. But Floyd Landis's emails to top cycling officials and top U.S. 
Olympic officials, you know, that was the game changer. And, uh, and once the FDA Food and Drug Administration, Jeff Nowitzki was their chief investigator, once they got involved, there was a problem for Lance. Now, having said that, Jeff Nowitzki had read a book that I brought out in America called From Lance to Landis, The Inside Story of the American Doping Controversy at the Tour de France. And Jeff Nowitzki was convinced that Lance was a doper. All he wanted was a way into the story. Mm. And uh, once, once the feds get involved, it becomes a lot harder to lie because, uh, you know, you don't get to bring your, um, your lawyer into the meeting with those guys. And they tell you, you lie to us, we will know. And, and the next thing is you'll find yourself in prison. And Marion Jones, the, you know, the great, whatever, four-time gold medalist from Sydney, Marion Jones was the example of that. She didn't go to prison because she doped. It's not a legal offense. It's not a, it, it, it's not a crime in the US to dope. But it is a crime to lie about it to federal officers. That's perjury. And you may go to prison for perjury. So once the feds got involved, the truth was the truth always stood a better chance. Yeah, I think it's I think it's amazing. And you t- you hear the people talking about going into those sworn affidavits and they, they almost just say more than they've ever said before because there's that yeah. fear of 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 being held more accountable. Um I wonder what when was the last time you had any interaction with Lance? Oh, that would have been 2004 really when LA Confidential came out press conference in Liège I'm sitting in the front row we have our usual kind of back and forth and um, but I never I haven't talked to him since the whole fall down he said on Oprah Winfrey when she pressed him on it that he would apologize to me but I didn't believe for a second that that would happen and and I judge that right <laughs> it hasn't happened and um, he would probably regard the money that he's paid to the Sunday Times as his expression or his admission of guilt, you know, repaying the money that, that he got kind of illicitly from the Sunday Times. But no, there's been no contact. And um, I think in a way, Lance, has, Lance always had a, a problem with, with my approach in that he felt I was concentrating on him when, it, when so many others were doping. And he feels victimized in that way. And I certainly understand his thinking on that. But my argument to him would be, Lance, you were the main man. You, know, you were the guy winning all the tours. You were the guy making the tens of millions when everybody else was making hundreds of thousands. You know, the other top guys were making a fraction of what you made. You were the iconic cancer survivor. You were the people, you were the guy who had, a, who, you know, who had this relationship with cancer survivors, that was huge. So if you were being dishonest, if you were being fraudulent, it's a different thing than anybody else being fraudulent. And I, I don't think he's ever accepted, you know, that that was fair. I mean, he knows it happened and he, he can't change it, but he feels that, that all of the people he wrote against should have been treated with the severity he was treated and that's not how it turned out for sure. I mean, he looks at the guys who won the tours, you know, in the years around his victories before and after. We know many of those don't. And they haven't lost their tours. He's mm. the only one who, who has lost tours because of doping. Well, Floyd Landis lost one in 2006. 
Which but was Lance, the catalyst, yeah. Yeah, Lance left. I mean, Lance left Paris on those evenings, crowned the winner, and, and he would remain the winner for years afterwards and then have his name seven years after his last Tour de France victory. He gets his name struck off. That's pretty unheard, you know, pretty unprecedented in sport. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder, you know, my perception of what's going on now, and I've kind of done a little bit of research into what Lance Armstrong's doing at the moment. One of the many things he does is he has a podcast called The Forward. Have you ever looked yes. into any of that? So did you listen to his interview he did with Brian Fogel, who's the director and almost star of Icarus? Yes, 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 I did. I listened, uh, I listened to a lot of Lance's um, interviews. I find him quite an engaging host and his... Um, he called it stages at one point, you know, his Tour de France daily podcast, which he does with, with uh, uh, often does with George Hincapi and, and Johan Bernil gets involved. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I'm on the Tour de France, I often listen to it. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's interesting and it has a big following. And um, so it's, you know, it's, it's like, I'm not going to say, oh, Lance Armstrong is doing that. I will never listen. Listen still information in there that you might be interested in, of course. Exactly, exactly. But does it, does it come across to you, David, and this could just be me, but it almost seems like at times in the podcast, um, I don't know the man, there's no reason why, this is just my perception of what I hear, you know, it seems like he almost glorifies what he did at times to try and drum up interest in order to generate income, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I think he uh, glorifies, I'm not sure, Is it, I, I think he wants... He, he almost wants to normalize it for that period of time. You know, he wants to say, look, this is what we have to do. And yeah. he would say had to, as if he had no choice. And if you said, Lance, why do you think you had no choice? And he was, well, I couldn't have won the race without it. But you could have made a stand for clean sport. And you could have, you, could have, you know, got in there and, and fought the good fight. But, yeah, I mean, I, I get that ambivalence in Lance's approach. I mean, um, in that recent documentary, um, that's the ESPN when the 30 for 30, that's just come out. Yeah, Lance, I mean, I thought the moment that really was that Lance couldn't help being Lance was when he's asked about his son, Luke, who's a college footballer. You know, what happens if Luke came to you and said that he needed to take steroids to bulk up? And Lance said, well, I, I would tell him not to do it because you're only a freshman in college. Not worth it. He said, but if we were talking about the NFL, that's a different conversation. And I just think, Lance, how could you go through all you went through and still think that it might be okay for somebody belonging to you as a son belongs to a dad? How could you think it's okay to say to your son, yes, son, if you think that's the right way to go, I'll support you. As opposed to saying, you know what, if there's one thing I've learned in my life is that cheating can get you into serious trouble and it's best avoided. So I wonder, in in an effort to round up the cycling theme before we move on to kind of your performance as as a journalist and and how you've kind of constructed the and and worked your way up the levels you have, cycling, do, do we ever see cycling becoming a clean sport, a truly clean sport? Well... Yes, uh, um, I'm not clean in the absolute sense in that people will always cheat. But I think cycling is a lot cleaner now because it has a hell of a lot of testing. 
and 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 this might be a little bit uncomfortable from your point of view, Niall, but I would say, what makes you sure that cycling is now more polluted, more more medicalized than rugby? Where's the evidence? Cycling has far more testing. It invests far more money. Most of the substances out there are detectable. I mean, I speak to I speak to rugby players. I spoke to some rugby player, yeah, who plays Irish international, seriously involved in the Heineken Cup, seriously involved in Pro 14. He's had a um, 12-year career. I said, I said to him, how many times have you been tested in competition in 12 years? Because we had the recent case of James Cronin being tested in competition. Yeah. And he said to me, once. In 12 years, he's had one in competition test. Wow, I, I find that I find that startling because I don't know whether it's different over here now with the premiership and the relevant people who do it. But you know, we are tested regularly. I I think I got tested two or three times last season. Not not the the season we're halfway through, but the season before. It must have been two or three times in competition. Okay, two or three times. Well, well, maybe you know. Um, I don't know what the what the level of testing in Pro 14 is, but it's certainly not every game. I would imagine it. Um, it's maybe one game in four. I know with the Heineken Cup because I've asked players and multiple players about this. And in Heineken Cup games or the lower competition, it's one game in five that is subject to testing. Mm. So you can easily not be tested. By you know, given that it's two players from each team, just twenty-three players in every squad, only one game in five in the European Cup is tested. But it's the threat of testing, David. The threat of testing is well. I don't know. I'm speaking personally, as obviously anyone who's actually met me in person will tell you I'm a clean, <laughs> a clean athlete because I'm considerably too small for what I do. But the the threat of testing is as strong as the testing. You know, that's the yeah. The, I know. I, I totally get that. Yeah, the threat of testing is hugely important for people who would who would find it really hard to live with the shame of being caught. Mm, Not everybody. Would, would, would feel that level of shame that maybe you would feel. And, and I would say, I remember in 2013, on the day that Chris Froome won on Nonbon 2, he was tested after the race that day. He had been tested at, at 6.30 that morning, and he was tested at 9 p.m. that night. He had three different tests that day. Now, that's testing on a completely different level that you, than you'll get in competition in rugby. So the, the point I'm saying is that sometimes cycling gets a worse rap than it deserves because of its dreadful history. And I'm not certain that Egan Bernal, who won the Tour de France last year, you know, I don't know if he doped or not. If you put a gun to my head and said, you've got to offer an opinion on this, I would say, clean and people would say how could you say that and i would say well the alternative is i say he doped even though there isn't a scintilla of evidence out there that he did Mm. so what do you do keep your mind open and keep asking questions that's the only legitimate journalistic response but um i've had somebody tell me recently that that the and whether we're talking here about some forms of doping 
or the over medicalization of rugby, but that rugby, you know, has a real problem with the amount of, um, with the abuse of anti-inflammatories and painkillers. And we don't know how this is going to impact on people down the road, all of that stuff. And I'd, I'm just, I, I never feel like there's any kind of, you know, honest debate about what goes on in rugby in relation to the medicalization of the sport. And it, it's something that pr probably is long overdue. You know, um, you, you read it, you know, you, you, you read players' autobiographies, like Paul O'Connell's, Brian O'Driscoll's, and they've, they've had considerable amounts of painkillers over the years. And it wasn't illegal, but I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not sure that it, it tallies with the need for player welfare. So in an effort to round this off, high performance in your world and that's kind of what i'm keen to discuss because we've covered the sports side of it and being the chief sports writer what standards do you set yourself to to perform and ensure that your work is of the highest quality whilst also having to take into things like man management and uh, creating a team culture where you your, your whole team outputs the best possible quality well i think um for sure like everybody else in any kind of uh, in any kind of op occupation where you're working with people, you've got to get on with them. You've got to compromise. You've got to try and be polite. You've got to try and be considerate. And if, if you're the one who's more experienced and more senior, you have to be particularly conscious of all those things. Mm. Um, in relation to high performance, when I write a piece, um, I really do like to be fair. I, I would hate if somebody said to me, what you wrote was really unfair. I never mind say, somebody saying what you wrote was hard or what you wrote was pretty unforgiving or what you wrote was, was tough on that person. My question would be, but was it fair? And if it was fair, I, I'm good with that. I, I don't mind being, being tough on people or institutions or bodies, but I would hate to be unfair. And because a journalist has a lot of power. And I know when I was um, younger, you would routinely abuse the power, not in a, not in a really malevolent way, but you would be, you would be smart ass at somebody's expense. And, and that could be quite hurtful to that person. And over the years, I kind of came to the conclusion that if you were going to be hard on somebody, you know, say that somebody didn't play well or somebody mm. um, let the side down. You know, you've got to say that without any joy. You've got to say that without any smart assery. You've got to say it in a way that almost says, I'm not comfortable saying this, but I feel it has to be said. When we had Nick Mullins on, I, I discussed the idea of journalism and how it's, it has, you, you'll give me a better idea and you can tell me to shut up young man if you want to, but the idea that journalism has changed, okay, because it's, in a, it's a world that has evolved massively away from this printed copy to the tablets of your phone, okay, and, and whilst the stories remain the same, there's a demand more than ever for information faster. Does that mean that you compromise 
at times the authenticity of what you're putting out there not not you personally i mean the world of journalism within some outlets for sure it's it's some of its drivel but does that at times lower the level of journalism as a whole oh yes yeah of course it has to if you have two hours to write the story it's not going to be as good as the story that you have 10 hours to write um so that need for for Everything being instant is it runs counter to your desire as a journalist to pursue, produce something really thoughtful. But on the other hand, there are many, many journalists who are really good producing stuff very quickly. It's, it's a tremendous skill and they achieve it by being really well prepared and by, by doing their job really well. The printed word is still really important. Yes. But of course, people are getting their information now via lots of different platforms. Mm -hmm. I mean, I listen to tons of podcasts. That's the way of it now because the world has changed and has changed really seriously. But on the other hand, if you said to me that all your information now was going to be audios, you were going to be listening to podcasts, you were going to be watching videos, you were going to be watching documentaries, everything was going to be conversations and there wouldn't be any reading in the future. Well, I would find that a really depressing scenario because Absolutely. I do like sitting down and reading because you can, you can read it at the pace that suits you. You can go back over it. You can have it there. And I kind of maybe because I'm old school journalist and I was around and um, somebody said at the weekend about something that I had done, they said, um, basically it proves that, words can still be a really effective way of communicating. The written word can still be effective way of communicating. And that certainly, I found that encouraging. And then it, but it is a battle. I mean, I know I subscribe to many newspapers, to many kind of media outlets. And I mean, do I read, do I, do I spend more time reading rather than listening? I'd say it's probably 50, 50 now, yeah. where if you went back 10 years ago, it was, 90-10. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to, I mean, I think we'll be a lesser society when we, when we, when we read less. Absolutely. I totally agree. I totally agree. I just find it very interesting that, you know, the landscape's changed and it's almost changed while I've grown up and now I am kind of in professional sport. I see um, at times journalism feels like it's done in a rush and there's a lack of actual factual information in it and that can annoy me and frustrate me at times but to counter that it's just the way when nick said it to me it made perfect sense it's just evolving it's evolving and it's demanding people to just kind of catch up with the way the world's going which is tablet based and and screen based but the importance of you know my rounding up you know some of my fondest sunday memories are a Sunday roast in the house in Belfast with me, my mum, my dad, my three brothers, and either my mum or my dad already having picked up the Sunday Times and a scrap of all scraps to get that sports section. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's nice. It, yeah. And it's nice to think of that from my point of view, because the printed word has been my life. Yeah. Whether it was, whether, I mean, I've been at the Sunday Times now since 1996. That's mm. 24 years. I've been writing since 1978. That's 42 years. All the people who've said to me down through the years, God, you know, can I, can I carry your suitcase? Can I come in your suitcase? You're going to the Masters. You're going to Cheltenham. You're going to the Rugby World Cup. You're going to the Football World Cup. Can I come? And, they, and everybody says that. 
And it's a funny thing, but sometimes people who have very well-paying jobs um, say it. And I say to them, okay, I'll do your job for your salary and you can do mine for my salary. Would you be prepared to make that change? And they all say no. I've loved it and I certainly wouldn't change it. And I didn't get into it to end up rich which was just as well. No, I think you well you've you're at the top of the at the top of the tree now you're doing an amazing job and I think it's only right that I give you a huge thank you on behalf of myself and everybody who's going to listen to this because some of that insight into the blurred lines of high performance some of the anecdotes that you have of rubbing shoulders with some of the highest performers in the sporting game are just unbelievable and I want to say a big thank you for for jumping on with us today. Okay, now no problem pleasure for me. Thank you mate. Thank you. A big thank you to David for his time. It was a pleasure sitting and chatting about a 40-year career that involves some of the biggest characters in sport. Thanks to you, the listeners, for taking the time to tune in. I'm Niall Annett, and you've been listening to Wind Your Neckin'.